Hello and welcome to episode seven of the Poolside Pass podcast. On today's episode, uh, we are joined by Dr. Brent Russell, who is kind of almost a, a founder and developer of the Ultra Short Race Pace Training, um, otherwise known as, as USRPT. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be um, kind of diving into you know a little bit of, of the theory behind the model, but also um, hopefully um, kind of covering the model uh, in, in a little bit of detail, um, as well as signposting some, some useful resources for those that want to learn uh, more about the model. Um, I'm, I'm very aware that, that the USRPT training model um, it always causes uh, a massive debate uh, whenever it's talked about. Uh, my opinion is that um, as coaches, you know, we at least need to need to read about these models and understand them so we can make our own mind up about, you know, which direction we want to take when we're writing our, our programs. Um, so just before we get into the in- interview with, with Brent, here's a quick line from our sponsors, Streamlined. Become a qualified swimming teacher with Streamlined in as little as six days. Learn at your own pace and be guided by our expert tutors. You can do your training face-to-face, online in real time, or a combination of the two. Assessment can be in your club using videos or attending one of our assessment venues. We offer tailored, high-quality support. Quote the poolside pass for an extra 10% discount. Okay, so I think it's about time I introduced Brent to the podcast. Brent, uh, welcome. How are you getting on? Uh, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much, Jamie. Um, so why don't we just uh, kick off with uh, finding out a little bit more about uh, about you and how you've been involved with swimming, because you're not someone we get to hear from uh, very often out on the swimming circuit. So why don't you just tell us kind of how you got into swimming and in your journey to, to discovering and developing uh, ultra short race pace training, uh, otherwise known as USRPT? Uh, yes, well, be- because of my age, uh, I was born on the day that World War II started, that is when uh, uh, Poland um, surrendered. Uh, I've, I've had a lot of uh, sporting experiences. Uh, I, ca- I can't recall learning to swim uh, because I grew up in uh, Sydney, Australia, very close to Bondi Beach, and most of the recreation that, that uh, the young men or the young boys that I hung around with and that, I was always the, the youngest by two years on the amongst those cohorts, was on Bondi Beach. And um, so I learned to surf and to swim, and I can't ever recall learning about those things. They just seemed to develop. I was... I was doing them at the age of four or five, and um, so so I've, I've always been involved with the water of, of swimming and uh, uh, body surfing at that particular time was a, a big deal, particularly for us uh, younger kids. Um, I and so I was being around water. Um, I never trained for swimming or anything like that. Uh, I swam from a school, uh, but never trained for the sport. And one of the things at that particular time was that uh, all Australian school children, so we're talking now about uh, the uh, mid-1940s, all Australian school children had to be able to swim before they participated in other sports. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why Australia did so well internationally in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, the education departments got rid of that requirement and uh, so uh, uh, swimming then had to compete against other sports for patronage from young kids. Uh, my first introduction to coaching uh, was uh, I did teach beginner swimming in 1957 for the New South Wales Swimming Association. That was my final year in high school. And I can't remember why I did that, but um, I did it at the Bondi um, icebergs uh, baths at those particular time. At that particular time, I was really a rowing and rugby coach at the high school where I taught. Once I graduated from uh, uh, college with my first degree, uh, and uh, I decided. Uh, since I failed to make the Olympic team in 1960 as a rower, uh, I needed to, uh, I decided to go overseas at the end of 1964 uh, and study in the United States. So I had four years in which to generate and, or save enough money to be able to make that feasible. So um, in 1962, I went to Ride Pool and asked Forbes Carlisle if he had a job opening. And I didn't know at that particular time that he and Ursula had just accepted a coaching position in Holland uh, for the 1964 Olympic Games. And so he hired me um, because I was a full-blown uh, mathematics and physical education teacher at Sydney High School and um, was seemed to be relatively responsible because I was the rowing master at the school at that particular time as well. And uh, so he hired me and while they were in Holland, I ran their swimming school for them and also coached the elite group of swimmers that they had. Uh, I was very fortunate that uh, the assistant that I hired to help me was Neil Ryan, who was going through his um, uh, uh, physical education training, the same that I had had, and we had a, a wonderful time experimenting with science and filming and doing that with lots of uh, Forbes's best swimmers uh, that we inherited, and that resulted in four Olympians in 1964. Uh, and at the end of 1964, I'd intended going overseas, and since I was doing so well at swim coaching. Um, Doc Councilman invited me to go to Indiana University uh, to study for my master's degree and uh, what finished up to be a couple of doctorates. And so um, I went there as his research associate, graduate student and sometime coach. And that was just the, the most wonderful educational experience I could ever uh, get. But I really wasn't into swim coaching once I left uh, the United States in 1969 to go back to Australia. Uh, I went, I was into computers at that time, very early on, and I went back and worked for two years with IBM Australia. And then in 1971, got offered a very nice position 
at Dalhousie University in Canada in the professoriate. And so uh, my family and I moved over there. And I was immediately um, after 1972, when Don Talbot uh, was hired as swim coach at uh, Lakehead University, uh, got on the men's and women's uh, national team staffs, primarily as a psychologist or performance psychologist. I think most people would call it sports psychologist, but uh, performance psychologist. And um, I, I coached uh, and uh, did the psychological support services until Don left uh, Canada in 1979. In, uh, intermittently, I coached on the national staffs of Canada and the USA. Uh, I did commute to New South Wales, Australia uh, in the early 1990s because they weren't very happy with uh, how many swimmers they had uh, that particular state on the Australian team in Barcelona in 1992. And so I commuted from San Diego uh, while I was uh, teaching there as a professor. And uh, I have also had periodic times where I coached uh, by invitation for a year at University of San Diego and a similar around about uh, five or six years later at San Diego State University. Um, primarily, I've consulted with most uh, many champion swimmers across the world. Once we were able to get online and uh, be able to interact uh, internationally, uh, establish things doing that way, I was able to do stroke analysis and that just by um, using various forms of uh, software uh, and most recently here in the United States maybe in the last 10 years or so spent time with uh, with master swimmers and had a lot of success with uh, USRPT then so um, I think my international successes as a national coach for rowing uh, coach for world champion heavyweight eight or assistant coach for world champion heavyweight eight there and rugby, particularly with uh, uh, the Wallabies in Australia and uh, later in, in Canada, uh, that those things gave me a broader perspective on coaching than I would have gotten had I have just done swimming. And uh, I know that when I started working with Forbes, uh, rowing was a fairly hard-working um, sport and so I did push the ride swimmers to work a little bit harder than Forbes had done and I think marrying uh, my enthusiasm and demands with uh, some of the philosophies and the research findings that Forbes had uh, adhered to, we came up with a very, very good mix at that particular time. So um, that's that's how I got into swim coaching was I needed the money and did it and it sort of hung with me since, uh, you know, for 55, uh, 60 years since. So um, that's, uh, that's how I got into coaching uh, swimming. And most of the time now I, um, I, I do uh, talks to groups who want to pay my fee 
which is not all that much, but, you know, appearing classes and stuff around the world just by doing what we're doing now, virtual is uh, live podcasts to those particular coaches, or classes, rather. So that's, um, that's where I got involved in the sport of swimming and in my lifelong association with Forbes and Nurse with Carlisle since that 1962 um, date uh, has always kept me in, in swimming. And I'm very fortunate to have uh, Doc Councilman and uh, the late uh, great Don Talbot also as uh, friends and uh, uh, patrons of the work that I did. And uh, so I've had, I've been among some of the best uh, scientific coaches that uh, I could ever imagine. And it was very fortunate. Um, so awesome. that's so, my uh, coaching development. So let's talk a little bit now about kind of how, you got on with your your journey to discovering uh usrpt uh, when was that kind of first on your on your radar as, as a method of training and, and when did you start to really d develop that further uh i did it very successfully with uh, rowing uh, with high school rowing uh, of all the boats that i coached for sydney high school um, to the uh, ultimate uh, test that they had each year. I only ever had one crew that didn't win and uh, they placed second in their race by a very close uh, area uh, decision. Um, and so there was, there was work that was done by the uh, Swedish researchers in uh, the 1950s, particularly the Astrans, and in uh, the 1960s uh, that showed that short work and short rest has all sorts of benefits for physical training as opposed to long work and, and long rests. And so my uh, honours thesis in 1960 uh, picked up on this and I tried it in rowing. Uh, when I went and worked with the Carlisles, uh, we had uh, so many swimmers in the pools that we had that we had to do the best use of the pools we possibly could. And so instead of the swimmers swimming uh, 50 metres or 55 yards, as it was back in those days in Australia, um, long ways on pools, we used to swim across the pools and uh, work at a higher level of intensity. And so the... Um, Short work, short rest studies of the astrons, etc., uh, really worked out very well for us. And so our, our ride club uh, dominated for quite some time, uh, particularly, and came on very, very quickly once it started doing that sort of work. Uh, in in the pool to accommodate the numbers that we had. And so uh, uh, I think that kind of led to four Olympians uh, in 1964, even though I'd only been there for two years uh, coaching uh, for Forbes at that particular time. So so that that was very successful for rowing and had a lot of work, a lot of goodness to do with swimming. 
And so when I went to Canada, uh, I consulted with a number of uh, coaches that were in the Halifax region. And on uh, the faculty that I was there at Dalhousie University was Nigel Kemp, a young uh, former Great Britain swimmer. And he was coaching a swim team in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And uh, I got involved with swimming there and started the scientific training squad, which was financed independently by a, a brewing company, the O'Keefe Brewing Company of Canada. And we had all sorts of uh, great results. Probably the best result was um, uh, for the only time it has ever occurred, uh, a 13-year-old girl broke the world record in an age for 200 metres backstroke at an age group swim meet in Brantford, Ontario, and that was uh, Nancy Garapick. And so not only was she the second youngest uh, swimmer ever to hold the world record, I believe there was a South African breaststroker, at least Cecil Cole used to say that he coached the youngest swimmer, but uh, Nancy was a, a great talent and uh, continued to swim well up until the Olympics in 1976 when uh, she got two bronze medals in both backstroke events beaten by the two East German competitors in those, those events. Uh, um, that, that, that was, that, that at the same time that I was doing research in this and measuring and looking at work, uh, we're also having, putting it into effect in practical circumstances and also getting uh, success and now most recently over the last 10 years or so or since I pu uh, published the um, uh, USRPT uh, introduction paper in 2011 master swimmers are now doing a lot of USRPT and certainly some of the well, quite a few of the best in the world particularly those that live here in the United States are doing it and having uh, great success. Um, I, I'd like to show you, if I could, the, the sort of thing that uh, the Astrans and Petersons and those in uh, Sweden had. So uh, let me um, let me get it up on my screen, and then we'll share screens if we if we could. Okay. Yeah, of course. From uh, 1960 research work, and this is the sort of stuff that I was looking at when I was doing my honours work at that particular time. This is from uh, Irma and Perloff, Astrand and Christensen, Hedman. Those are four great names that have to do with uh, the work output of, uh, of people at various work-rest ratios. What this shows is it measures amongst, they measured several things, but I chose to illustrate the lactic acid concentration that occurs as work is occurring. The task in, that was done here was it was always a regulated same amount of work on a cycle ergometer. So we've got some, in swimming terms, USRP term, this is race pace training every repeat is done at the same velocity. 
okay? Yeah. And when they have uh, do this level of velocity, which is quite high at 25,000 plus kpm uh, for 60 seconds, and then they have, uh, that's one minute, and have two minutes rest, gradually lactate builds up and they can't perform any more than after about 20 minutes of this ratio, one minute on, two minutes off. If we take the same ratio of one to two down to 30 seconds of work and 30 seconds and 60 seconds of rest, uh, lactate builds up, gets to a certain level, and then sort of peels off a little bit or, or recovers slightly. Uh, the difficulty with this level of lactate is that it, it, it generally, in a lactate of that particular percentage, inhibits learning. And so if swimmers or if people are performing at a set level of performance and trying to improve their technique, if they've got high enough lactate level, and although this is fairly moderate, uh, it's it's going to inhibit their learning. Whether it's long-term memory or short-term memory, I don't know. I don't know the research that's on that. If you do 10 seconds of work on and 10 seconds of rest off, there's no accumulation of lactate. So this means that using very short work and short rests produces no lactate so they can work on technique while also practicing the energy or energizing work of that particular standard. Mm. So the short work, short rest, gets rid of these contaminants of fatigue that occur. And if we'd have gone, if this study had gone longer than 30, we would have found that these, this 10 seconds work, uh, 20 seconds rest would have gone for, you know, maybe an hour, an hour and a half or so, and they'd still maintain that level of performance. At, at, at Ride, uh, particularly with Ursula Carlyle's uh, age group, uh, swimmers where she had most of them swimming uh, the pool was uh, uh, 15 meters wide uh, it was only a six lane pool um, she her swimmers would do that for an hour do this uh, swim across the pool stop and go across in waves and as soon as the last group uh, got over there having started five seconds apart uh, the first one would start back again. They'd do that for an hour. And Forbes was uh, had me do the same thing down in a 25-metre section of it. It was a T-shaped pool where we had the top groups going uh, 25 metres uh, fairly fast but not trying to overwork it, uh, working on technique and stuff, and they could hold that for an hour with no problem. Uh, if we reduce the workload, then fatigue's not going to be as bad. So if we do a work-to-rest ratio of one to four, which is even greater amount of rest, because that's what some people say, oh, well, we can do that with traditional training, we'll just give them more rest. We find that the lactate still climbs up and gets up to a very high level. You're not getting much out of this type of stuff. It becomes a bit of a struggle. But they, at this particular 
one to four work rest ratio, you've got 80% of the time in the pool resting, which is not very good use of the pool. Uh, and so um, you can, they could last the whole 30 minutes of doing this particular task. At 30 seconds of work and uh, two minutes of rest, we find they climbed up and it's not quite as severe as that over on the left hand side, but on the right hand side here, it was still higher. And down at 10 seconds of work and 40 seconds of rest, there's hardly cha any change whatsoever in the lactate level. It, the, the, the virtue of this is that by not accumulating lactate or depleting the glycogen stores that are in the body, which happens when you have these uh, longer work periods, uh, then you can do high quality level. Of course, glycogen is very important for learning yeah. uh, and uh, also maintaining work. And, and so it, uh, uh, it, it's, th this is the physiology that's afforded by um, a one to two work rest ratio and very short work, very short uh, rest is uh, it, is worth the effort. <laughs> it really is yeah, much more yeah. beneficial than garbage yards and slogging up and down pools. So this is the original 1960 article that influenced me and said, uh, I ought to try this with my rowing crews. Well, we went out and just killed all the uh, uh, opposition that went in the, for two years after discovering this sort of thing in there. And then we put it in the pool once I took over with Forbes and Ursula Carlyle's groups. And, um, and sometimes they came back from Holland for brief periods to have a look and see what was going on. Uh, we did this and just had fantastic uh, uh, results from it. And at that particular time in Australia, there was no winter swimming. And we had a 12 and a half metre pool built in uh, the backyard of Forbes and Ursula's home, four lanes. And so I took the top group and we did uh, 12 and a half metres of swimming, which is about seven or eight seconds max. And uh, really did fast swimming at that particular time, not that we were doing uh, race pace work, um, didn't even consider that. And they do an hour of that three times a week. And I think that's why they did so well uh, in, uh, in Tokyo at the Olympics and also making the team. So, so that's the sort of research that was back there. Now that's 60 years ago. And yeah. most, most swim coaches I talk to, most physiologists I talk to, aren't even aware of this. But it, it's, it's one of the things, and it's what came out of Sweden in the 50s and 60s and very early 1970s was a lot of this practical work where they were looking at how people performed doing different types of uh, stratagems for, for work and uh, we got some answers in there that uh, proved to be very, very successful. And at, at Indiana, uh, when I was uh, showing Doc this uh, and Doc Councilman was 
directed both my uh, uh, PhD and my doctor of physical education, not that I graduated with that, I didn't think it was worthwhile going through the uh, ceremony, um, and uh, my honours master's thesis, uh, we got into this and Doc really uh, em employed it well with Indiana and apart from having great swimmers, uh, he, uh, he had great success where they won six NC2A championships in a row. When uh, we started that in 1968. Uh, uh, so that, that gives you an idea of what uh, what I was doing at that particular time. Cool. So, so, so now we've got a, a bit more of a deeper understanding about the kind of scientific principles behind uh, USRPT. Why don't you give us a little bit of a, a whistle stop tour into you know the work you've done more recently, as a, as as recent enough as, as 2011. You mentioned earlier about how yeah. that then arrives into kind of swimming now. Right. Um, in, uh, in, in the early 2000s, when I, I uh, talked to a lot of people in swimming here in the US and uh, to be honest with you, I was disgusted with their knowledge about how the human body function and the mind function and what they were doing in swimming. I'd noticed this for a long time, but I'd never really focused on it, that there, there was a general approach by, particularly by college coaches to help their recruiting where they would invent some, some form of training and they would try and convince swimmers to come and swim for them by saying that they're the only team that will be doing this form of training and it's it's really good for you, so come and swim with me, you know. And most of it was just uh, horse hockey. It it, uh, it was rubbish. And so I uh, had started the Swimming Science Journal in 1994 when I started to put up all the research items that I'd been reading and uh, ha had uh, taken note of and that so that people could see what I'm basing my uh, my uh, beliefs or opinions on that was steeped in science. Uh, I was a little bit obsessive with science, still am, uh, but uh, every day I used to read six articles, not necessarily on physical performance, but on scientific articles to keep my uh, uh, eye in on, on science. And I think that's that background and that sort of knowledge was one of the reasons why I was on the uh, National uh, Scientific uh, Foundation of the United States. Uh, and uh, so, um, and one of their primary uh, evaluators of research uh, applications. Uh, anyhow, um, the, I, I came to this, these conclusions based on the evidence. There's a hierarchy of coaching concentrations in USRPT. Sound mechanically correct techniques 
are the primary avenue for performance improvements. In other words, in swimming, it's technique that gets you the improvements, not anything else. Or it's the most effective thing to do. Um, USRPT is an organisational structure that facilitates the teaching and the correction of stroke and skill techniques. Uh, because it's short bursts, short work, short rests, in those rests there are lots of opportunities for coaches to provide feedback and instruction uh, that, that's going on and so the swimmers can keep on task and yeah. uh, practice uh, and develop uh, these things. And, I, and the technique features uh, I put into book form uh, several years ago. Uh, but primarily USRPT is a physical training activity that provides the best opportunity for developing techniques uh, at the intensity of swimming that's required for racing. So it's it's an opportunity to do much better technique work. Unfortunately, very few coaches know much about technique. They, they'd much rather talk on their cell phones on the deck. Uh, the second thing is that mind control and associated behavior modification experiences, that is some elements of psychology uh, are those factors that are involved in improving and excelling in performances. Uh, I did a lot of work in the 1980s and 1990s that showed time and time again that by doing these sorts of things that uh, had become known through practice at uh, the SEAL training, Navy SEAL training or Marine training and that in the armed services over here, uh, particularly uh, also the, the top gun programs uh, that you get to be the very, very good performers in what it is you're training for. And so the psychology involved in, in uh, swimming, if you do the right sort of stuff, is going to be give you much bigger gains in performance than you would get if you, uh, I, there was even one, uh, I, I've got the data, never published it, but I did present it at a forum that showed that uh, psychological manipulations can produce bigger performance gains than can drug, using drugs. So I, uh, half an hour of instruction and getting an, an athlete to do work can get two to three percent improvement in performance, uh, whereas if you give them drugs and stuff like that, then uh, with, within uh, the next performance they might be lucky to get a quarter of a percent, but most of it's just a straight placebo effect. Um, so anyhow, so technique is number one. Mental activity is number two. Uh, and so I advocate that at practices, no stroke should be performed without an intense focus on an efficient aspect of technique. In other words, don't waste a stroke at practice. If by not thinking about 
learning to do a better technique item. So they've got to be obsessive and learn to do that. And it does take a little while to get swimmers to do that, but after a while they do are able to concentrate and focus on such a thing. Conditioning and training is the least important performance factor because it is limited by the bodily structures in a swimmer. In other words, what have they inherited? If someone has an average engine, there's nothing you can do to them in physical training that will give them, change that to an above average engine. As well as there being great diversity, uh, where some people have really superior physical engines and they've got a step ahead of someone who's just average, uh, you, you can only train the body to be maximally physically fit in a short period of time. Uh, generally about three weeks, uh, about 12 weeks is the maximum level. Anything after that, you're going to get no gains from physical training. And we've got instances of great swimmers who train for uh, once they stop growing, uh, and once they stop growing, there can be no modification of their physical attributes except degradation of those attributes. They're not going to get any performance improvements through. Uh, when swimmers are growing, primarily because uh, I think anyhow of uh, uh, human growth hormone, uh, they do get performance improvements purely because of the growth factor, and that's what happens with age group swimming. But once they mature and stop growing, your only avenues for improvement are uh, mental control and particularly technique advancement. And that seems to be what uh, the, the master swimmers are working with uh, now uh, really responding to. Um, so no amount of exertion that you do in the swimming pool is going to bridge the gap between an average physical specimen and a superior physical specimen. And once they get to peak physical fitness, it's, there's going to be no change uh, in their performance attributed to exercise. thing. You, you talk to swim coaches and they talk about uh, all four peak years and each year, each uh, period within a year, they're going to get uh, better and better and fitter and fitter. That's just garbage. It doesn't work that way. The body doesn't work that way. It's one of the beliefs that's in swim coaching but that is not supported by science. Uh, and all the, the, the justification for those three items there is in my original USRPT paper where I showed that this is what science shows that the things that people are talking about in swim coaching at that particular time, don't forget this back in 2010, 2011 when I wrote that, uh, is is just not true. And so the programs are based on falsehoods. And, and unfortunately, it's not a good thing. Uh, the, this is uh, just an overhead from something I did oh, quite some time ago, but it's as true today as it was then. Uh, 
talk about energizing capacities, you know, and there's lactate training and there's aerobic training and there's all these sorts of things, all different types of training that's in the swimming literature and the general sport literature. Most of it's just absolute nonsense. That uh, if the... It, this is what physiology tells us, and, and I'll refer you to... If I, if I had to refer to one individual, one physiologist who uh, has a, a world reputation, that's Tim Noakes in South Africa, and this is what his lifelong work has shown, that if the energy systems trained are not those in the proportion that they'll be used in the contest, then there will be little transfer. The, and, and so if you do slow training, but grind really hard, and say, say we do a traditional training set of, uh, of uh, 12 400s on uh, six minutes or seven minutes or something or other like that, uh, the energy capacities and the way energy is used in the body there is not going to transfer to uh, a racing situation because the the brain energizes muscle fibers appropriately for that slow speed of swimming and it has no carryover to fast speed of swimming and so if training doesn't replicate the energy system use of competitions then it's not going to be very useful at all. Uh, the second thing is uh, neuromuscular organization. Uh, the skills of training must be exactly those of competing. If there's a difference, then irrelevant training will result. In other words, if you don't learn to swim at the velocity that you want to swim or that you're targeting to swim in a race, there's no way that you'll be able to do a superior performance at that particular task. And, and if I go and look at all other things that are occurring uh, that, that man gets uh, involved with, uh, like performances, um, let, let me use a musician. If we've got a pianist who wants to be able to play a Tchaikovsky uh, piece really, really well, only improves in that that particular piece by practicing it. You don't get pianists or violinists or track sprinters or that going out and doing things that aren't to do with the tasks they want to do. So the pianist won't suddenly go and start playing the harp won't, and playing a different tune on the piano to improve another piano. It doesn't work like that. The brain, a human body, doesn't work that particular way. No matter how much a coach says it, it does, uh, this is why we do lactate training so that the swimmer can persevere with lactate, etc., etc. Ah, it's a load of crud because lactate doesn't accrue that much in a swimming race. Uh, most people don't realise it, particularly the 200s and 100s and 50s that people swim, you don't get the maximum lactates at the end of them. 
not enough time occurs for you to generate that. But we we subject them to doing that at practice, then those practice items are not going to be very good. Uh, Cognitive control and evaluative feedback that is getting the mental activities involved in practices, which rarely are instituted by coaches, uh, they must be trained through relevant practice experiences. Now, I, I pointed out earlier that if you try a, a stroke at practice and you're not focusing on what you're doing, uh, you're, you're wasting a stroke or wasting many strokes. That's exactly what happens. The research shows that when you focus uh, in fatigue circumstances on the mechanics of what you are doing, uh, the signals of fatigue and pain and that are blocked. And so it's, it's what we call the gating theory by uh, two researchers, uh, uh, Wall and Melzack. Um, and it's as good today as it was when it was first introduced back in the early 1970s. Uh, so we've got to have the brain practicing and practice exactly what it's going to do in a race. Got to learn to concentrate. And, and these are things that Navy SEALs do. These are things that uh, people who are in the uh, Top Gun program do. You don't get up there in a jet plane going 1,100 miles an hour with an adversary around that's going to fire something to you and start thinking about Christmas or something or other like that. You have to be totally committed mentally to the task to have that ultimate level of performance in that particular task. Now, that's what you need in, in sport to be able to get the best performance you possibly can. And so paying attention to what the brain is doing and how it is doing it and what it's, the content of what it's on is as important as the, the other factors in there to my way of thinking. But technique definitely is going to uh, modify the efficiency with which a swimmer goes through the water. In other words, a swimmer can go at the same pace using less energy or can go at a faster pace using the same amount of energy. That's what technique will bring you. Uh, mental activity will keep you limited to the task so that you don't deviate and have within performance variation. And the physical conditioning stuff will just prepare you as best as you might be able to be prepared. And so these are the factors that, are, that have got to be emphasized in training and to just do one of them, like the physical conditioning and some uh, rubbishing uh, understanding of physiology uh, is, uh, is, not, is unfair to the swimmers in the pool and, and it's not going to produce good performances. It's actually going to produce many more worse performances than good ones. So um, that, this, is, this is the first thing that I look at uh, for uh, people should look at if they're going to coach swimming they've got to pay attention to these things and it's my advocacy that USRPT is the best way 
of affecting those three emphases in a single practice session. So let's so, go so, back to, did you have any questions on that? Yeah, I've, yeah. Got, I've got a question. Yeah. So obviously the, the world over, um, you know, right now there are many swimmers preparing for, for the Olympic Games, hopefully that, that are going to happen in, in, in the summer. Um, is it is it your belief that those of them that, that aren't currently following a USRPT program would be even faster if, if they were following one? Um, I, I'm, I'm not too sure it's a belief. But I think if, if you take any of these, any top swimmer, and you subject them to a USRPT program that fits with those three emphases there, you'll get performance improvements. Yes, let, me, let me give you an example. Uh, Michael Phelps swam his fastest times in 2008. Mm -hmm. Now people say, oh, he was wearing the super suits and all that sort of stuff there. Well, in 2004, he did quite well, uh, but in, in strength tests on ground, he was the weakest of all the men there, so I believe, I've been told, that's what happens by a staff member that was on that particular team. 2008, he did all these wonderful swims over there in Beijing, and then 2012 in London, he still won a whole host of gold medals and that, but none of them were quicker than he'd done in 2008. So people say, oh, well, you know, it's uh, he's had four years more training, but he didn't use the super suit, so that shows you how influential the super suits were. 2016, he won a bunch more gold medals and swam even slower. So... Uh, we could say the same thing for, for um, oh, what's the name, the 200 freestyle women's champion from London, uh, Schmidt. Um, oh, that's my age. Alison Schmidt. Alison Schmidt, yes. The, my age name recall is shot. <laughs> uh, she, she did... She had four years of extra training since 2012 and just got slower. Even though she was doing altitude training and had all the benefits of these sorts of things and Michael Phelps was going through the same things and not getting any quicker and not doing, getting, okay, someone said, well, he was distracted and all that, so they've come up with excuses for why. But the, the main thing is that whatever their swim training was doing to them through there was not getting them to perform. And, and, and this is what has happened uh, uh, to a lot of swimmers. Uh, the, the first notice I had of it was Jenny Thompson in 1992 the, in the 100 metres freestyle. She was the world record holder. In two, she swam 1992, 1996-1996 and the year 2000 in those three Olympic Games. And by the eight years of training with the coach who led her to uh, her world record in 1992, same coach 
doing all the stuff through there, she improved by three-tenths of a second over that eight-year period. Now, you've got to ask, what benefit is... What, what's the benefit of the training they've been doing? It, it just hasn't produced any improvements. And, and, that, and so uh, swimmers, when they stay with the same coach and do the same old thing over again, once they stop uh, growing, uh, they just don't improve. And, uh, so it, there, there are isolated instances, of course, where, where there are swimmers that come back and do something really quick, uh, particularly with sprint things, but uh, the, the distance stuff from that is just not changing. You know, the, 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 the men's swimming, where they're lifting even more and more weights and all this sort of stuff and that, the, the 400 metres, the 200 metres and the... Um, 1500 metres freestyle events, they're, they're really not changing all, all that much. Back in 1992, um, the, the winning 400 metre men's Olympic event was 445, uh, uh, 345 rather. Um, if you swam that time today, you'd make any national team. Now, that's a long, long time ago. That's 28 years ago. So that as a sport, we're just not getting any improvement uh, that we really should be getting when you look at the real the resources and the, the information that's around, uh, the scientific information that tells you what you should be doing. So, um, so th this is... This is what USRPT requires a coach to do. You don't do USRPT training if you're not working on the mental activity that's associated with the stroking that's occurring, if you're not working on the efficiency of the movement that's occurring at the pace that you're performing, then you're not doing USRPT. It's not right. purely swimming up and down on a clock. You get the, the the gist of that then? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, let's turn that screen off. I'll stop sharing that screen and I'll get back. And, uh, uh, all right. So that's the hierarchy of training that USRPD requ requires. Uh, recovery is the most important feature of swimmer experiences. This is another change. There's uh, what they call the, um, uh, the the Methodist ethic of the uh, hard work yields results, uh, and that's not necessarily true. You can work too hard, um, and so recovery is the most important feature of swimming experience. Physical training is catabolic, whereas recovery is anabolic. Few coaches realise that training makes swimmers perform worse. You know, if they go, a swimmer goes to practice, they get worse as the practice goes. Fatigue comes on and all that sort of stuff. And it's only in recovery that the benefits of physical stimulation are shown the body in recovery the body gets a chance to readapt 
to heal whatever fatigue damages have occurred and to be better prepared for the next time they're exposed to the same stimulus. And unless you have complete recovery, then you're never going to be able to improve because a swimmer will only learn to perform in fatigued states, which are states that are irrelevant for swimming performances. In other words, they endure long-term fatigue and don't learn any new techniques or anything like that. So, so USRPT requires complete recovery between uh, uh, training sessions. Yeah. And with the master swimmers that we've got now, and it's become very obvious, not that I have any data on it, but uh, uh, most of them will say that when they're doing this USRPT and each subsequent practice session they have, they want to do as well as the, they did before, they're only training maybe four sessions a week possibly five sessions a week, no more than an hour a day. And people will say, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, how can you get well when you're doing that when other swimmers are putting in 30 hours a week and et cetera, et cetera. And it, it, that, that's not what happens. So, so let me show you a, uh, a graph uh, again. This is not my research. This is Rod Haverlap, is uh, a former Indiana uh, student uh, down in Florida, and these are data that he published in the Journal of Swimming Research. So this is this is not me. But what it is, he tracked hand force values across a season of training, uh, and seasons don't come into play in the USRP too, actually, um, and. And so this point on the left is where they all start. It's normalized for each individual. As the season goes on, their ability to develop hand force gets worse. In other words, their performances would be worse than if they'd have done no training whatsoever. Yeah. And then, then they allow recover, do a recovery on a taper here at the end. Well, if we, if we look at the swimmers that are here, there's their initial value. This is a hard training program. Four of the swimmers got better, slightly better, and four of the swimmers were actually worse at the end of that training program uh, than when they started. So this, the coach of this particular program has killed these four here and these ones here have marginal benefits gained from being really depressed or fatigued or suffering from uh, performance decrements for probably incorrect or incomplete recovery through there. So th this is a disgrace. If you're going to start there, then the training experience should produce elevated performances up here for everyone. Yeah. They either get their improvement by sliding through the water quicker, with less effort, that's desirable, uh, focusing on the task better, 
so that when they start to get fatigued, they maintain their mechanics a lot longer and therefore continue to slide through the water before starting to slow down. Uh, but in this sort of thing, this is the, um, the, the, the rubbish that most swimmers, uh, particularly over here in the US that I see, are, um, are subjected to. So that's, that's, that shows me that recovery is very, very important. But if you get people so far down, even when they do get an opportunity to do some recovery, they don't even get back to where they were in the untrained state, which is, mm. which is a shame. So uh, I've just got maybe a couple more questions um, to kind of round off, round off the episode. Um, I think we'll start with, start with the, the, the one about maybe applying USRPT into, into club environments. You know, a lot of the coaches listening to this, this podcast will work uh, within club environments uh, with large group of swimmers um, across multiple lanes. Could you give uh, those coaches that perhaps you know want to try out running a USRPT program or perhaps already do run uh, a USRPT program so some tips and ideas on how to make this model uh, applicable within those environments where you've got lots of swimmers lots of lanes because you know when you actually get down to the physical training side of things you know you've got short short uh, intense bursts of, of work you need to be getting repeat times for those but also you've got uh, relatively short, uh, short periods of rest in which you've got to, you know, finish the timing and, and set people off. So how can coaches try and make the model applicable in, in those environments? All, all right. Uh, I, I'm, one of the things that I've done since I've done USRPT is I've written down on paper pretty detailed and uh, validated explanations of what I've talked about because I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm saying by trying to remember just the verbal word. You go to where I've written down exactly what, what, yeah. I, what I'm talking about. So I want to share the screen and show you... Um, Let me, let me get here. All right, this is the Swimming Science Journal. And if you search for it on Google or anything like that, just put in Swimming Science Journal. And this is, this was, I started this in 1994 and I stopped it, oh, about four years ago when my my wife uh, first got got ill and there there is a section of it that's called USRPT articles mm -hmm. and this should be the resource that uh, coaches should go through to have their questions answered about USRPT so let me just click on that well, I hope, uh, there we are. All right, now, now these are all the papers and that uh, that I've written. Um, 
This very first paper is one where I talked about track and field sprinting using ultra-short work for that oh, quite some time ago, maybe back in about 1969 or so. Then this one here, if you click on this link here, it brings up the original exposition of uh, USRPT. It's a very heavy reading, very documented, over 200 references, uh, and I've changed it periodically over time, so that's now in its third edition. Uh, then there's uh, a testimony from Dr. Daniel Thompson about uh, ultra-short race pace training. Uh, and the, the, these are ex ex expositions of USRPT. And here is the first one that coaches should look at, which is ultra-short race pace training and traditional training compared. And so they can see what they've got to do in USRPT as compared to what they do in a traditional program. Uh, then we've got a training possibility is another way of saying this is how you might do training, adapting the report, uh, aerobic training, not enough, etc., etc. And then so these are are all things here to do with USRPT of why you should do them and what swimmers should be experiencing. Uh, then a little bit further down, I'm, I'm just looking to see where it is. So there's one on warming up. Do warm up on the desk and deck and get into the pool and swim straight away because that's what you do in a race. You warm up on the deck, stand up on the block, and then you're immediately into the performance. You should practice that. Um, there's a testimony from Forbes Carlisle who changed his whole lifelong orientation of physiology uh, to USRPT work. Uh, sprint training for 50 meter races, which requires you to do something different. And uh, I'm, I'm, ah, here we are here, number 16, step-by-step -step USRPT planning and decision-making processes so this is one that is written for the steps that a coach has got to go through to convert to USRPT and requires you to teach the swimmers different orientation to what they're doing. The swimmers have got to adapt uh, and, and adopt a large amount of responsibility. They've got to look at their time. They have to monitor the 20-second recovery period. There, there's some research that shows that um, when you... Uh, what's the length of an interval when you're doing short work, uh, which is any work less than a minute, uh, about if it's like that, and, and it, uh, it says that 20 seconds is the most effective one. Less than 20 seconds is too short, uh, longer than 20 seconds doesn't give you much more gains. It's, it's, it's what we call the fast uh, part of aerobic adaptation. So learning to pay back the, uh, 
the energy sources in the body that need to be stored and that very, very quickly. All the major recovery occurs within 20 seconds. So it doesn't matter what distance you're doing your uh, short work at, uh, 20 seconds uh, rest is standard across the pool there. So if someone's trying to repeat 30 seconds uh, for a 50 metre uh, freestyle uh, unit, then they have 20 seconds rest. And so they will do a uh, commence their interval every 50 seconds. They do another 50 seconds, uh, another 50 metres and evaluate whether they were able to hold the 30 uh, second pace. As soon as they, a swimmer feels that they can't do that 30 pace or they do slower than 30 second pace, then uh, they've got to miss a repetition and recover a little bit more. Uh, that, and so USRPT is governed, as, as it's explained in all these articles down here, is governed by adequate recovery between each set, each uh, interval in a set. Uh, so there's there's all these. So what do we got? Thirty seven articles here, all on yeah. uh, USRPT. Here's some partly related articles, and here are some uh, websites that are. Just two of them there. I'm sure I could put a lot more up now, but I just haven't done anything uh, since I dedicated my uh, life to uh, my wife's welfare. Um, I may get back into it now since she has passed on. So, so this is this is a, the resource where someone should go and find, and and so that uh, step by step planning down here. Should be, they should run off printed copies and read that thing and follow every step exactly that's in there and implement it. It, it does take some teaching of the swimmers, particularly if they come out of an original program where they have learned to cheat. Uh, in other words, so they, you know, if they do eight 400s and uh, they're getting tired, so they uh, pull the plug on several of them so that they know that they can... They've got to do the eighth one and do a pretty good time on the eighth one. Well, they're not going to try on the sixth, seventh ones and so that they can finish off uh, to the coach's satisfaction of what they're doing, which is one of the bad things about traditional training. Um, so that, that's a resource that they should look at. And each of these is a PDF. So if we look at um, this step-by-step, and I click on that button there, it's PDF format. You can just save that or you can download it or print it or what have you. And uh, yeah. you've got the instructions in there. So that's what I would say that people who want to do these things, they should uh, do that as best as they possibly can. Cool. So I'll make sure that that website is, is included in the show notes. So, so any coaches interested in, in reading more about uh, USRPT can, can go and check out those those articles and, and further, further their knowledge on that. Yes. Brent, I've, I've just got um, kind of a final final question, um, really, in terms of uh, the main interview. You know, there there will be a lot of coaches out there that that like um, like 
like what they hear about about this model but maybe don't feel fully confident with with implementing implementing it as part of their, their whole training program um what, what are your thoughts on whether you know coaches can can weave in uh, usrpt sets uh, within isolation through the week as part of a more diverse training program uh, well the diverse training current training programs are irrelevant for racing in other words they they don't prepare swimmers to race that that that's that's a sweeping generalization but i bet that's true in 80 to 90 percent of all programs uh, people talk about well i don't believe this usrpt but what i'll do is i'll put a little bit of it in there if you only do a little bit of a good thing and you do a large amount of a bad thing then the large amount of a bad thing will mask out the benefits from the little bit of the good thing it's you either do the good stuff and stop making errors or, or you're not going to get the maximum benefit out of it now I, I wish I could mention names and and show you things that with these master swimmers who have swum all their lives and all that, that sort of stuff, and then they start doing USRPT. Here's some generalizations that are in there. Up to the age of 65, a swimmer who, a master swimmer that implements USRPT correctly, will swim as fast as they did in college. Okay. Okay. All right. So, do you get this? so they swam yeah. at college 40 years ago or 45 years ago, and this is the time they did. Now they're 65 and they're, they're doing master swimming. They'll swim faster than they did in those, than they did back in those ages. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's number one. Uh, number two is that the uh, USRPT is so specific that it it doesn't maintain performances as you go from 65 to 70 to 75. The, the age factor does come up and there is some degradation in performance. But with irrelevant traditional training, the degradation in performance falls away dramatically. USRPT slows down the decrement. And so you'll get someone who's 60, in 65 years of age doing USRPT and they may be the top 10 in the United States doing USRPT at 65. If they continue that for the next five years, by the time they get to 70, they'll be in the top one or two. By the time they get to 75, they'll be the best in the world. It's the, the, these are the figures that uh, seem to be coming out with uh, the USRPT uh, uh, masters, swimmers that we have around uh, around the globe uh, at this particular time. So it, it seems to me that master swimmers really embrace USRPT because 
they're not in an age group program where you're all teaming around and sharing lanes and that. They look after it themselves. They can monitor what they're doing. Uh, they log every performance they do. That's the time for every swim or every repetition they do. How many repetitions they can do before they fail on three, uh, a total of three failed swims. And uh, it's, it just seems to be the, the best way of, of, of doing these sorts of things. I might point out that um, a USRPT set, this is something I wanted to point out there, takes a swimmer to fatigue. That, that is fatigue at race pace. Yeah. So on, on a particular day, you might say, we're going to train for 200 metres freestyle. We're going to repeat uh, 50 metres with 20 seconds rest. You know what that 50 metres, which is one quarter of your 200 metres freestyle time, that's your time that you to do or do or do it faster. And the latter part of doing that, you start to get tired. Mm. But you've got to hold your pace. This is what happens in a race. You get tired, yeah. but you've got to hold your pace. Well, you're doing this at training in, in this particular set. And you've got to concentrate more to hold your pace. There's the mind coming in and not being distracted by irrelevant things that you work on a technique aspect to get you through that next repetition. Uh, if you fail to do the time, instead of doing 33 seconds, you do 33.4, don't quit, but miss the next repetition, have a bigger rest and go at it again. And so they're slightly recovered, they get more repetitions in there and they come into this fatigue stuff. A USRPT set trains for the whole race. That is different to doing 2050s on 50, mm. where the swimmer gets to the 20th and said, oh, that was pretty easy, I didn't do too much. They haven't practiced the fatigue stage of a race at that particular pace. Yes. And so USRPT is to mirror all the event in its entirety. Traditional training doesn't do that. It either does it irrelevantly, that is you do something that's not going to carry over to the performance, or you don't train up to when you're into detrimental fatigue. So. Awesome. So Brent, we always always ask our guests to kind of finish on a little bit of a, a quick fire quick fire question, um, and I think I already know uh, what your answer is going to be for this this one. But we're going to ask you for your your top three uh, take home messages uh, for USRPT. Uh, right, yeah. Um, training should be exactly specific for particular swimming events. Right. So you don't get in and do aerobic training. You get in and you train for 200 breaststroke or for 400 freestyle. Yeah. A, that's a completely different way of thinking. So 
So that that's number one. You, you, the specificity yeah. of training is universal and outside of swimming and in training in swimming, but if we only we, we ignore it in swimming mainly. Only begin a practice session when a swimmer has fully recovered from a training a previous training session. To go to practice tired and do poor swimming is of no benefit to anyone. Yeah. That's, and the ways that you evaluate that is all in those papers that I showed you on the Swimming Science Journal. And technique improvement is the avenue for swimming success at any age. That's 70 years old, 75 years old, uh, yeah. 24 years old. We've got, we've got too many professional swimmers around now who are not improving. There are always the one or two like that, are, that continue to improve for some reason or other, like Caleb Dressel, and that is, seems to be still getting faster and faster at his sprint, sprint events. Uh, but those who are doing the form strokes and uh, longer distance events just don't get better once they stop growing. Uh, and so those are the three things that I would advocate uh, as being the things that, that USRPT wants coaches to pay attention to and they're not being paid attention to in most traditional programs. Awesome. I, I, I do have, uh, let, let me just show you one one last thing here to, to summarise this. Here's a URL up here. In 2012, uh, at the University of Tampa, Kansas, I gave a two-day seminar, so that's 16 hours, of uh, USRPT, training what it is and all that sort of stuff, and uh, not only the physical training, but also the technique training. And that was uh, recorded. Um, Tina Andrew did most of the work in organising this whole thing. And so there's this seven-disc series of ultra-short race pace training that explains the everything behind it and how you do it and also the technique uh, items that you need to look at. Uh, that has been on sale for quite some time for $199. There's, there's 100 copies of these left and it's not going to be reproduced again. And the distributor of it, which is um, the Fresh Air Media uh, Incorporated, is going to is going to offer it now at ninety nine dollars for seven it's seven DVDs so everything you ever wanted to know about USRPT is on these DVDs. There's there's nothing on these discs, even though they were two thousand and twelve, that I would say is wrong. All I'm actually doing now in two thousand and twenty one is probably phrasing some things a little differently to make them a little more understandable. But the content is as relevant today as it was back then. And so if uh, anyone uh, is interested in getting more on these 
that's a big reduction, 50% reduction. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, if for outside of the USA, there's very expensive to send these things first class. There's a, a, a mailing fee on that. And you, you can just click on either of these two things down here, particularly this one here, and you go to the order page. If someone wants their own uh, item for their own library for um, understanding USRPT, so this is going to go, they'll start advertising this in about two or three weeks. But that's it. If you go to brentrushall.com, DVD sale, dvdsale.htm, I hope that's easy to remember, it'll take you to here, and then you can click on this uh, order page down here and uh, be able to get it. It's just a resource that's in there. Uh, I don't get anything for these things. I sold the rights a long time ago. So, but What I'll do, Brent, look- is, I, is I'll get you to to email me the, the URLs and I can put them in the show notes so they're easy to follow uh, for, for the listeners. I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that for you. Awesome. Well, All Brent, right. thank you very much for your time. Uh, really appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to speak to us today. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly found it uh, a real eye-opener into, into the world of USRPT and it's, it's certainly given me, given me plenty to think about. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure plenty of the listeners think so too. Um, so thank you for that and, and very wish you the very best, uh, very best for the future. Well, thank you, Jamie. It's been uh, my pleasure. I tend to ramble a little bit, but uh, hey, that's, I'll, I'll claim the age factor. <laughs> Good to and I thank uh, those people who look at this podcast for, for uh, persevering with it. Okay, so... That concludes our interview of Brent Russell. Um, he's certainly certainly very outspoken about uh, what, what he believes in in terms of his USRPT program. Um, like I said at the start of the podcast, you know, this was not um, not the poolside pass trying to get everyone to convert over to using USRPT. It's, you know, it's certainly not a, a trainer model that, that, that I'm using at the moment, um, but it's more more a resource uh, for coaches to, to listen to perhaps, to, to deepen their knowledge of USRPT and to help them help them make up their own minds because um, you know I believe as coaches you know we've at least got the responsibility to to understand as many training models as we can so we can so we can help bring bring the best of those uh, to, to, to the fore in our planning thank you for listening to this episode um, hope you found it useful hope you found it insightful uh, make sure you, you keep sharing all our podcasts all our blogs across your network uh, don't forget to, to stay in contact with us on social media we're at the poolside pass on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And of course, over on our website, www.thepoolsidepass.com. Until next time, take care.